All right, hymn 432. 432. We'll just do the first two stanzas. One and two. Everybody went music. <laughs> 432. In silent pain, the eternal sun hangs derelict and still. In dark and day, his work is done, fulfilled his Father's will. Uplifted for the world to see, he hangs in strangest victory. For in his body on the tree, he carries all our ill. He died that we might die to sin, and live for righteousness. The earth is stained to make us clean and bring us into peace. For peace he came and met its cost. He gave himself to save the lost. He loved us to the uttermost and paid for our release. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide the people of your church, that following our Savior we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week from the Gospel of John, John 15, 26. Let's speak this verse together. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. When the Helper comes, he will testify of me. If you're diagramming the sentences, which I'd say the majority of people in this room right now learned how to do, uh, that's, the basics, that's the basic sentence here. When the Helper comes, he will testify of me. The Helper is, as Jesus says, the Spirit of Truth. And the Helper testifies of Christ. Now, this is simply what we say all the time, which is that the Word and the Spirit are never separate. The Spirit, excuse me, never comes to deliver anything but the Word, and the Word is not delivered apart from the Spirit. The two are always together. They are inseparable. 
But it is also important to say from this verse that when the Spirit is working, the Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. There is never a time when the Spirit is telling you anything other than, hey, look at Jesus. Jesus is the one to look at. Jesus is the one to follow. The Holy Spirit, through faith, is the cattle prod that moves you on your way to be closer to Jesus. We would say, even in terms of baptism, that baptism, the, that primitive faith that says, hey, you know what? I want Jesus and that means I need to be baptized, therefore I want baptism. Even that is the Spirit saying, go, go, go. That's where you need to go. That's Jesus. You want to get to Jesus, you got to go in there, and you got to get wet, you got to go down, you got to come back up. It's all the working of the Spirit. But it is Jesus' Spirit, it is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. This is really important, because what do we say in the Nicene Creed? Proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, just brief, very briefly, there is uh, controversy, or there was controversy in the church over what's called the filioque, which is Latin for and the Son, which was an addition to the Nicene Creed in Latin, proceeds from the Father and the Son. The East says, proceeds from the Father alone. The West says, proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And there are reasons for all of that. Suffice it to the, say this, though, both the East and the West, in saying what they say, are actually saying the same thing, which is this. The Holy Spirit is Christ's Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is sourced in the Father. And the Son because he is begotten of the Father, has everything that the Father has, including the Spirit. But the Spirit is sourced from the Father, in the Father, and therefore proceeds from the Father. But because the Son has everything that the Father has, he proceeds from the Son too, but primarily proceeding from the Father as his source, and we can even say through the Son, because Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit of the Father. That's what both churches are saying, and the biggest problem of what happened in 1054, which was, that's the, the year of the big split between the East and the West, and they said it was because of the Filioque, but it really was more than that, because the Filioque had been there from, from the year 300 on. Uh, but the biggest problem is the difference between the Latin language and the Greek language. Latin has to say one thing to be clear, Greek has to say another thing to be clear, and they don't really mix. Okay? But let's speak this again. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. What is the third article of the Creed? I believe in Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, 
believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified me, kept me in the true faith. The only thing that you believe, or I suppose the fundamental thing that you believe, according to the third article of the Creed, is that you cannot believe. It is the work of the Spirit in you that is the source of your belief. On your own, you are unable to believe. At best, you are able to say, I am not able to believe. The Holy Spirit calls you so that you may answer a call. The Holy Spirit enlightens you by giving you gifts. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you, that is, makes you holy. And it is the Holy Spirit that keeps you in the true faith. God always is the one who works. You are nothing if not given to. All theology is gift. God works and you receive and not only receive, but also respond to his work. The, the language of calling here and what Jesus says about seek and you will find, ask and you will receive, knock and it shall be opened to you. Uh, all of this ties into the reality that God does it first. How would, why would you want to knock if Jesus hadn't told you that when you do it, it'll be open to you? I mean, you wouldn't. How would you know to call to God if God doesn't first call to you? You wouldn't. It's always the source and the genesis of the act is always with God to you. And the act of the Christian then is by the working of the Spirit and is a reception of and a response to the work that God does on you, to you, and in you. Questions about that? Okay, to Sunday school then. Leanne, we have two visitors here, fourth grade and second grade. You can follow Leanne, Mrs. Olensale in there, and she will direct you. All right. Questions about the verse of the week or the creed, the catechism, or about the filioque controversy of 1054. Okay. Oh, yes, sir. I have one that's totally off, off of that. Okay. Sure. Yes. Since I'm sitting in Bill's chair here, I'll try to train if I can. Yes, please, please. But you'd have to begin this with a 10-minute story for it to be. Big shoes to fill. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> uh, I read a, a, an article in the St. Joe paper this last week uh, saying that some group of scientists um, have uh, put a uh, super-duper telescope online and have discovered a uh, number of huge, huge galaxies at the far end of apparently the universe and these galaxies that have most recently been discovered that they thought were, were going to be very small and, and obscure mm -hmm. uh, turned out to be absolutely humongous. Billions of times the size of our own 
galaxy. So, uh, and, and realizing, of course, that our own numbering system cannot fathom those types of large, if you will. Sure. Uh, and I, I, uh, I question, or it, it causes question in my mind when I, when I see this as to the, the magnificence and numbers of our existence. Uh, it just uh, it blows me away because we can't even count it. It's, it's so much. Yeah, isn't it great? We don't have the tools to, uh, to, uh, com to actually, I wouldn't say compute, but to swallow this concept or conceive what's actually out there. Sure. That's the Weber telescope, I assume, is the one you're talking about. Uh, that it's the one that's put the Hubble telescope out of business. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's that, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a really great Gary Larson Farside cartoon about the Hubble telescope, by the way, that basically everything is just tripled because the Hubble telescope can't get fo into focus. And uh, I only say that because the Weber telescope really does actually put the Hubble telescope to shame in how far it is able to look and in the clarity of the images it's able to send back. It really is kind of a marvel. Here's the fun thing. I read an article a couple months ago about this Weber telescope and it was, <laughs> it was a scientific article. So this wasn't even like from Christianity Today or you know, like, like a mainstream Christian source. This was, this was pagan scientists and they were freaking out. <laughs> and they were freaking out because they said everything that we're finding in this Hubble telescope completely disproves everything we thought we knew about the Big Bang Theory. They said, yes, we, right, we, we thought that, you know, because the Big Bang Theory said, you know, this is how it goes, this is how it would be, we would assume that every galaxy uh, would look a certain way because the idea is that there is rapid expansion and everything's being pushed out from a central location, but the more of these galaxies we find, that's proving to be absolutely unanimously false. So they say, now we don't know how anything came to be because the Big Bang Theory doesn't work anymore. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, curse that Weber telescope. There was also a scientist who got in really big trouble because he took a really close-up photo of a piece of sausage with his telephone and then posted it to Twitter and said, look at this beautiful photo of a galaxy. And everybody said, wow, look at that. There's a beautiful galaxy. And he said, it's just a piece of sausage. And then the scientist said, you're... You're done. <laughs> Want to know what the biggest problem with people is nowadays? That they don't have a sense of humor. Okay. Yes. Now, uh, before we talk about the scheduled material, there is kind of some drama that I need to address here because I have been asked to do that. And by drama, I don't mean in this congregation. I think I've never met in my life a congregation less dramatic than this congregation. And uh, don't worry, it's a fact I thank the Lord for every day. Every now and then some pastors will ask, so, you know, do you have alligators in the congregation? Because they always tell you at the seminary, oh, yeah, you're going to have alligators in the congregation. Th th those you know, few people who are the loudest and the meanest who are always after you and always after blah, 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 blah. And so these young, young pastors or seminarians, you know, people you sit down and talk with, well, so how's, you know, How's, how's, the, how's the stuff? How do you handle interpersonal problems? And I say, you know, actually, I've really not had a lot of those. I think I can count on two fingers the number of times I've actually had a problem like that. 
which is twice, in the time that I've been here. And uh, one was big and one of those was really actually kind of little. All of the other problems here are kind of more uh, of an environmental nature, an expansion issue, uh, building problems like floods in the basement, <laughs> uh, floods in the community, things like that. Uh, said, yeah, really, you know, the people are great. It's the, it's the world around that's the problem. So uh, it's not with the congregation. It's actually with the synod. And this is one of those things I wouldn't be talking to you about ordinarily because pastors see a lot of the behind the curtain and there's no need for you to see all of that behind the curtain most of the time because you never really should have reason to hate or be worried about or distrust your synod. Uh, so most of the time, the dirty, greasy stuff stays behind the curtain. However, it has made national news. So now I had a number of folks ask me about it this week. So I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to give you the Eighth Commandment version of it, which means I'm not giving you my opinions. Because my opinions are not at all charitable uh, most of the time. So here's the deal. In 2016, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod at convention charged Concordia Publishing House and the CTCR, which is the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, to produce a version of Luther's large catechism that contained annotations and explanations. The idea was to address the fact that people in the Missouri Synod don't know anything and don't know how to know anything, generally speaking. Again, this congregation is a lemon. Uh, it's a real lemon of a congregation and a real peach of a congregation. And so you don't really have that same problem, but Synod, generally speaking, does. In fact, even many pastors within Synod choose not to read or study or learn, and then when tasked with it, don't know how to do it. So Synod charged CPH to produce a resource that could be used that would essentially take the text of the large catechism and have commentary on it and good footnotes that explain things and would tie the text of the large catechism into problems of modern day and say, how do we use this, this large catechism to address these specific issues of our modern culture, which are not really the same as a lot of the issues that other cultures, or uh, that other times had um, in an effort to say, yes, the, the large catechism is what we would say as a confession of faith for our church body, a timeless thing, that it'll, it'll say what it needs to say in 1523 or in 2023. This year, I think perhaps the, the end of 2022, that book was released. 
And there are some significant issues with that book. Some of the issues were brought to light by a Twitter feed. Well, isn't the internet great? And that caused mass outrage through Synod on two sides. One side that said, leave him alone, leave him alone on Twitter. And another side that said, kill him, kill him, kill him on Twitter. So the president of Synod said, well, huh, we'll stop publishing the book and we'll take it off the shelves and we'll send it back and have it reviewed, which was the fourth time it had gone under review. About two weeks later, the president said, put it back on the shelves, start the presses up again and put it out. We don't think that there's anything wrong with it. And the people who said that there were things wrong with it are bad people. Now the issues that were brought to light from the Twitter are not as big issues as they were made to be, but the fact that the Twitter feed existed then caused people actually to read it, and they found that there are not the same, but actually different issues that are big. And problematic. Like with many things that are produced by a committee, there are a few things that are phenomenal, some things that are pretty meh, and some things that are significantly problematic. Where this has made national news is that some some self-proclaimed anti-fascist blog website got wind of the controversy and did a deep dive into a number of people in the LCMS and accused them of being Nazis, white supremacists, racists, and a whole bunch of other things. Two of those individuals, well, actually, really one in particular, does have kind of a damning Twitter feed, although Eighth Commandment being what it is, you could probably put things into context and rationalize them. But that sparked controversy then. President Harrison sent out a letter condemning any form of white supremacism, white supremacy, and demanding the excommunication of the people who were accused by the anonymous anti-fascist article of being white supremacists, which has sparked even deeper controversy. And though I don't think he meant to do this, the wording of his letter insinuated that anybody who questions or disagrees with the large catechism book that was published is a white supremacist a racist and a Nazi and should be excommunicated. So the entire Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is now on fire with people that don't appreciate being called racists and white supremacists for finding theological issues and with people that are happy to accuse anybody who disagrees with them of being neo-Nazi white supremacists simply because they disagree with certain 
factually incorrect theological statements in a book that is supposed to be representative of the Synod. The convention that is coming up in August will, because of this, probably, co probably be a historic convention. And if you know anything about Missouri Synod history, you know that a convention that is a historic convention is not historic for being good. <laughs> Most of the historic conventions are so because uh, they were loud and mean and problematic and bad things happened as a result of them. Or good things happened that caused a lot of bad press. Think Seminex. There is a distinct possibility, and this is, this is simply speculation, who really knows, that because of all of this, the nomination process for synodical president will cause what is known as the Nader effect. That so many people are angry with how the situation was handled at best, it was handled in a rather blah way, and at worst, in a very poisonous way. Uh, the nominations from congregations for presidents have flown in, in record numbers. Here is the best part. President Harrison, of course, is the incumbent. The main individual, Dr. Pat Ferry, who is running against him, is a very proud member of a group called Lutherans for Racial Justice. Now, why am I telling you all of this? One, because it made the news, and I would rather that you hear it from me than read a bunch of anti-fascist blog posts, because those, let me tell you, from reading them, are pretty bad. Uh, they brought things they made accusations that caused a whole chain of events, but they made more than accusations against individuals. They had a lot of slurs and things for Christianity in general and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod specifically. So I would rather that you hear these things from me as your pastor. Let me be the one to get dirty because my job is to kind of, you know, try and protect you and to keep you as clean as possible, as clean as I am able to do. So let me get dirty and just share with you what the dirt looks like and tastes like. I am also sharing this with you for a deeper pastoral reason, and that is because I want you to, if you weren't already, keep the pastors and the bishops of this synod in your prayers that we would not be led astray by the teachings of the world that have been for quite some time creeping into the church, but are now becoming manifest in the church. The so-called wokeism of, of the culture, things like equity and uh, this, this radical new form of segregation, but for the sake of good, because the last time that people argued for segregation, it, it, it wasn't for good, but this time it is. Th things like that. Um, cultural Marxism, which is really kind of opposed to Christianity. All of these things are creeping into the church and now are becoming manifest. Um, 
women's ordination is another issue that is becoming more manifest. So um, pray for your church, your local church. Pray for the pastors of your circuit, keeping things close to home, but also pray for this synod because think what you will of synod as an institution. What the church really doesn't need is more and more fractures. And pray for everybody who goes to the convention in August that it would not be a historic convention, but that things would be taken care of in a calm, Christian, and pastoral manner for the betterment of the church and the preservation of the gospel. Brother, that is all, that is all Eighth Commandment. This simply ha what's happening and why. None of that is opinion. I will not share my opinion on any of this with you. Please do not ask me to do it. I'm not in a position to share those things with you as your pastor. That would be poisonous of me to do that. Do you have any questions that I can answer or to help you understand about this deal? There is not a limit, I don't think. But when it comes to when it comes to the logistics of synod, there probably isn't a worse person to ask than me, because I actively try to bury my head in the sand and just take care of my congregation and not be involved in any of the politics. Um, and it always seems like every time I peek my head back in, it's something like this, and I say. This is why I don't do this, okay? So, I don't know about the term limits, and I don't know exactly how long he has been president, but I think since I was in high school. I believe it was 2004, 2004, three, in there. Keystick was yes. president for three years before him. Yes, which was... Oh, did you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was a great convention. That's another kind of historic convention because Kishnik, who was the president at the time, pushed for a whole lot of extra power and authority and control to go into the hands of the synodical president away from the people because he had an agenda that he didn't want opponents on. So all of those things passed. The president got tons of power, and then he was voted out of office, and they put Harrison in charge instead. And then for years later, uh, at every synodical convention, he would send letters out to congregations telling them about how the presidential office under Harrison is abusing power. Look at how much power they have. What a crock. The church shouldn't be behaving like this. Uh, so I don't know. I, there was talk that he wasn't going to run again. And there is kind of the machine. And the machine had selected a successor. And I don't know what's really happening about that, because I, tr I actively try to stay away from it. Other questions? So is Harrison, you said that there's Harrison and other Yes, Pat Ferry. There are lots of nominations coming in. We don't yet know who all the nominations are, but I know that there are a lot of them 
coming in. So I know that there have been things, in spite of what Brenda said, that folks have not been appreciative of how Harrison has handled every little nuance. But okay, yes. He is. He is right. In comparison to the other folks, you know, is are other congregations learning about this? From their pastor? I don't know, but they sure are from online, which is why I want to do it, have you hear it from me and not from the internet. The internet's a terrible place to learn things like that. I guess I have. So it's been happening for a while, but this past week, the lettuce really hit the fan. And where is the conviction? Milwaukee. <laughs> yep, it'll be in Milwaukee. And I am the delegate, the pastoral delegate, so yeah, can't wait. There are some things that simply must be done and they're not glorious or glamorous or comfortable or fun. Besides, you will attend the convention. I will. There is a lay delegate from this circuit that will be attending. It is uh, one of the, from the circuit. There, is, there are too many congregations in synod for every congregation to have representatives at the synodical level. We would for the district, but not for the synod. At the synod, every circuit is represented. Bill Heitman was elected to be the representative from this congregation to cast the ballot at the circuit forum. I was elected pretty handily <laughs> at the circuit forum and a lay representative from Hope in Maryville will be attending as well with me to represent our circuit here. I've already, I've already talked to him about some of the issues that we will be facing at that convention. Can't obviously tell anybody how to vote, although that's how it always ends up, isn't it? If you've ever been the lay delegate, the pastors always know what's going on better than the laity do, so the lay delegate always just says, well, how, how am I supposed to vote? So um, some, some of the laity really know what's going on and that's commendable. Uh, however, the, the vast majority of them don't quite have their finger on the pulse to the depth that pastors do. And even I don't have it, my finger on the pulse to the depth that other people do, but I don't understand how other people have the time to do that because I've got better things to do. Who's the lay delegate? Kime Jenkins is the lay delegate. All right, any other questions about this dumpster fire? Yes, sir. Oh, 2010. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was, I knew it was sometime while I was in high school. Or thereabouts. Because I didn't know anything about synod really or what was going on, being relatively new to the Lutheran Church. And everybody was very happy that Harrison was elected and I didn't know anything about it. So I just kind of said, okay, great. <laughs> so we may, we may have some uh, rocky times ahead, friends. But the Lord, the Lord has guaranteed his church will always live and will always thrive. And that is the promise that we cling to. We don't pay attention to the grisly 
poor behavior of the men that, that are in the church. There's a famous quote from, the, uh, from a fellow named Hilaire Belloc, and he says, I 100% affirm that the church is a divine institution. And the thing that convinced me of that is the poor management of the church by men. Because no other institution that is run with such knavish imbecility would be allowed to survive in this world, but the church still has, and that is an indication of divine grace and work. Hold on to that, and don't be bogged down by bad news. Yes? Well, unfortunately uh, for us uh, here in the United States with the German tradition of which most of us have inherited, mm -hmm. We have a tendency to shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> well, that's the fun. That's the fun way to do it. Well, with these types of things, we've got to kind of set that aside and yes, and, uh, take a good hard look at all of this stuff. Yep. And be empathetic when it's all said. Yes. Now, if you want to know whether you should go out and buy the new version of the large catechism and whether your pastor would give you that recommendation or not, my answer is, if you want to get it and spend the money on it and read it, uh, you may, and I will never stop you from doing that. And there are some very good things in it. I won't endorse it because of the problems that are in it. And... Uh, so I'm not, I, I can't, especially on a hot mic, tell you it's complete heretical garbage and you shouldn't get it. Uh, I've read a significant bit of it and have identified issues. Um, the CTCR, by the way, also released a statement last week in which they said that they stood by their work but did acknowledge that there were some problems that they hadn't thought of and a lot of things that could have been worded better to uh, avoid the problems that they have now caused and acknowledged a lot of that. So it's not just individuals that are saying there are problems. The CTCR that oversaw the work came out and said, yeah, we could have probably done this better. Yes. Who, who in the Senate was the... Convention. Oh. Synod in convention tasked CPH with that. And some one individual had to say, well, you know, we need to do something there. You know, you know grounds well. And other people didn't know I think, I think the CTCR was the individual in charge of that, which is, if you don't know about the CTCR, it's a committee, and there's 15, 20 folks on that committee. So they are kind of the overseeing thing, and then they work to get the thing produced, and then send it through Synod's Doctrinal Review, which is an, a separate committee. So, yes? Is Dr. Nascar on that committee, or has he... Uh, I, would, I would have to look. I see. I would have to look. I'd only recognized about half the names on the committee. So, 
Um, I, I, would have, I would have to look it up to know for sure. Again, I really kind of try not to pay attention to those things. I'm, I'm uh, happy enough being a pastor for the people here that I don't need to, uh, you know, dig around looking for stuff. I'll put it, that's putting the best construction on everything, okay. There you go. Those are the facts. That's just how things are at the moment. And um, pray for the church as we, as we have and will continue to do. The other thing that happened in my experience with uh, the, uh, the tweets and so on, which is quite limited, but uh, it appears as if uh, anyone who wishes to voice an opinion uh, is able to do so on the electronic uh, Oh, sure. Social media is awful. Social media without establishing any kind of <coughs> background, reputation, or having to, to uh, prove a knowledge of the issues. It's just a matter of saying something. Yeah, here's the biggest problem with social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what all people are using TikTok. Um, the biggest problem is all that it is is a giant amphitheater of opinion. And you know the old saying about opinions. Everybody's got them. So uh, social media is the very worst place, one, to get any of your news because everything is polarizing, especially when it comes to things in the church. Everything is uncharitable because you can hide behind an anonymous screen name and you can hide behind a screen and a keyboard and you can write things that you would never dream of saying to anybody's face. And it's and it is just people with feelings and opinions. Now, I've written a few pretty scathing letters in my day as a pastor, one even to an unnamed district president. Every time I've done something like that, I have sat down for a day and not done anything and then come back to write it the day after it needed to be written so that what I wrote was not a complete and utter dump of emotional response. <clears throat> the problem with social media is that nobody does that. Social media goes, Twitter, I'm offended by that. I'm going to tell you everything I think about it. And then everything is unbridled. The Eighth Commandment doesn't exist on the internet. And that is for all sides of every issue. Even the folks that you might agree with otherwise become demonic on social media. So if I were you, I would maybe tune into Daily Matins and nothing else. And you might find that the quality of your life 
improves significantly. And if you have Twitter, I would just get rid of it. There was a guy at the seminary with me that had Twitter, and he was always checking his Twitter stats. I gotta know how many people followed me. I gotta know how many people retweeted me. Who cares? Like, Jesus is gonna come someday, and Jesus doesn't care how many Twitter followers you had or how many retweets you had. Don't you have something better to do with your life than to check your Twitter stats? What's my digital net worth? None of it's real money, it's just pretend, but I wanna know how, if this were converted to money, it would, it would you know, look for me. And my response to that is, I think your biggest concern should be, because of that kind of activity, what your IQ, if converted to wattage, would power. Because right now, I don't think it'd power a light bulb. That's an opinion, that's why I don't share them. Okay, any other? I, I, I want to be done with this synod stuff because it's not fun for me to talk about or think about. I, just, I don't care uh, enough to make a giant big deal about it. It's happening. We deal with it, but I just want to be a pastor who is a good pastor and takes care of his people. That's what I care about, okay? So now you know you don't need to go and read anonymous articles published by anti-fascist mobsters telling you about how the Missouri Synod is bad. Do you know the, um, what's that Baptist church? The one that does the protests. Yeah, Westboro Baptist Church. Did you know, by the way, that uh, the seminary, the Fort Wayne Seminary Contrai, that the, the seminarians who sing in the choir and then they travel to churches and sing, I was a part of that. The year before I joined it, the Westboro Baptist Church protested the seminary Contrai and called them uh, Arianite Sodomites. So, the words of anonymously published anti-fascist articles really don't mean much. Now you don't have to wade through the garbage to find what's the actual news, okay? So don't, don't even bother looking for it. You're just gonna find a bunch of stuff that's gonna make you angry, trust me. And uh, you don't need that, okay? Now, let's talk about something interesting. Luke 16, I told you we were gonna talk about uh, this idea of torment. We've been talking about the harrowing of Hades. And just quick review, the harrowing of Hades, Christ descends into hell. We confess that in the creed, he descended into hell. He goes to hell. He sets free the people that are held captive there. The salvation of the Old Testament saints is none. They have the hope of salvation that rests upon their faith and their, their clinging to the promise of the Christ who was to come, and now he comes and he sets them out. But somebody asked a fantastic question, somebody who listens to the podcast and isn't a member of this church, relayed a question to me and said, in Luke 16, Dives, the rich man, is in torment. What about the other faithful saints who are in Hades awaiting the harrowing? Are they in torment too? That's the kind of question I like. So let's look at Luke 16. 
To preface this, I will tell you something that I have said before about, and in fact, I said this maybe a week ago to, uh, to Bill Heitman, because he brought up the, the two exceptions to the rule, that being the thief on the cross and the parable of Dives and Lazarus. And my response is always the same to Dives and Lazarus, and that is, it is a parable, and Lazarus may have a name, but his name also just means resurrection. So, you know, there's power in the name. Sometimes the name is the part of the story. Why is Lazarus such an interesting character? Because he's poor, but his name is Lazarus, which is resurrection, and then he goes to Abraham's bosom, okay? But I'm going to start reading before this parable, so you actually get the context for it. So you see some of the things that Jesus intends to address here. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also, excuse me, heard these things, that is the parable of the unjust steward, and they derided Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man. So the parable of Dives and Lazarus is all tied into this idea of you want to justify yourselves before man. But I'll show you what happens when you try to justify yourself before man. And that is, it doesn't go so well for you. So the moral of the parable of Dives and Lazarus, hear the law and the prophets. If you do not hear Moses and the prophets and you reject them, what can be done for you? And you won't believe, even if somebody should be raised from the dead, Lazarus, and who is raised from the dead, the real-life application of this parable, Jesus, who then is still rejected after rising from the dead. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Why Abraham's bosom? See, these are the questions that you need to ask. Why doesn't it say paradise or the kingdom of the heavens? Every other time Jesus talks about what we would say is heaven, he says paradise or the kingdom of the heavens. This is the only time he says the bosom of Abraham. That should pop out to you as a clue if this is the only time that Jesus says it this way. The rich man also died and was buried but he doesn't go to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, uh, and being in torments in Hades, again, not in hell, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to, to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. 
So there is a great gulf fixed. Hmm, interesting, between wherever Dives is, the rich man, and wherever Lazarus is, which is Abraham's bosom. But the question then is, where are they? Because nowhere else do you hear the talk about Abraham's bosom. You don't want to die and go to Abraham's bosom. Who cares about Abraham's bosom? I mean, why would you want that when you could go to the bosom of Jesus? Like, sorry, Abraham's great and all, but he kind of plays second fiddle. So what's this all about? Well, this is, in a sense, Hades. And there is this early church teaching, which Luther affirmed, by the way, that there are levels of Hades. There are levels of the place of the dead. So to begin, I will answer the question about torment like this. Is there torment in Hades? Yes, to a degree. Death is a torment in and of itself. Death is a torment. But there is still comfort, just like he says, he, you are tormented, but he is comforted in his death because he rests in Abraham's bosom. What is Abraham's bosom? It is the place of the faithful in the depths of Sheol. It is the place of Hades where the dead who are the faithful reside. The place of Abraham, because remember, like I said last week, Abraham is, one, he is the chief of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise is manifested to them. They pass it on. They want to be with Abraham. All the Old Testament saints talk about being buried with my fathers. You want to go back to where your fathers are because you know that you're going to Hades, but you don't want to be there suffering torments. Death is a torment of itself, and your existence after death is a torment in and of itself. However, you want to be in the place where you actually are being comforted. And the place where you are being comforted is Abraham's bosom, that is, the place where you rest with your fathers, awaiting the promised Messiah who is going to come and bust you out of there. And that is your comfort. What is the torment of Hades? Okay, what is the torment of Hades, uh, do you think? Well, that, the full experience of separation from God is what hell is. But Hades is just the place where the dead are waiting. Let me give you an analogy. The child is at home with his mother. And the child misbehaves poorly. And the mother says... Wait till your father gets home. When daddy comes home, you are going to have to tell him just what you did, and he's going to whoop you. Yes, so I'm going to say, that child now spends the rest of the day with that deep-seated fear of the clock and of the front door. Why? 
because daddy's coming home. And when daddy comes home, I'm going to get what's coming to me. And that's a guarantee. So the child tries to distract himself. I speak from experience. <laughs> the child tries to distract himself from the inevitable reality by doing this or that, or by, you know, hey, here's a funny joke, but you can't even laugh at a funny joke because everything that you say and think and do is tainted by the knowledge that daddy's still coming. You don't get to clear the air until daddy comes, and when daddy comes, he'll clear the air, not you. So what the torment is of Hades is essentially being burned up by a conscience that at that point understands, whoops, I gone done and messed up. And now I can't gone done and unmess up. And daddy's coming. And you are consumed by that burning of a conscience that is reminding you that daddy is coming home. And when daddy comes home, things are not going to look good for you. While your siblings still play and skip, excited for daddy to come home. <laughs> and you're the one who sees them and goes, why can't I be comforted like them? Because daddy's coming for you. When daddy comes for them, it will be nice. When daddy comes for you, it will not be nice. Dinner will be that function where you sit and eat in silence, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, mother says, well, why don't you tell dad what happened today? <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose. In this case, literally. Because now Jesus descends and he preaches his victory, and he rescues his people, and the rest he says, away from me now. You said you didn't know me. Now I don't know you. Now, if you wanted to be rid of me, you get it. Click, lock, goodbye. That is the torment of Hades. On one level, the torment of death itself the separation of the soul from the body, which, as we've talked about, isn't two halves. It's the entire integration of your existence being shredded. And then, going to Abraham's bosom, the place of your fathers, and living there in the torment that is death itself, but receiving comfort there in the knowledge that Christ is coming and in the hope of your fathers and their fathers and their fathers who all rest together, kind of like a church in exile, waiting finally to be released, while everybody else is tormented by the guilty consciences that confess to them day in and day out, he's coming, he's coming, Daddy's coming. You can't have any fun now because daddy's coming. You had your good in life, and now these people are comforted here because their good is coming. Okay? And there's lots more that we can say about that, but that's the basic answer. 
quick questions about that. Okay, very good. We'll see you at the altar. <laughs>